Thank you for joining me for the first episode of The Fourth Estate. I'm Eric Nieto. Before we get started here, I want to introduce myself and this podcast. I am a student at Goddard College, and this podcast, well, I hope to continue it well after I've graduated, is part of my undergraduate work. I study American political ideologies and ideological media, and this podcast will analyze American politics through those lenses. But this isn't just a school project. This is my earnest attempt to gain a deeper understanding of and help others understand the problems with the American political system and political media. Now, before I keep talking, I want to do what I wish a lot of people did and make everyone aware of my political bias. I'm squarely on the left side of the political spectrum. I describe myself anywhere from progressive to socialist. That said, I won't turn away different perspectives, especially when they challenge the dominant narrative or introduce information that isn't otherwise being considered. And although the aim is to discuss political ideologies, it's sometimes impossible not to discuss party politics. But I promise I'll do my best to avoid the partisan chatter that I think obfuscates the entire dialogue. So if in the past several months you have found yourself wondering how we ended up with a Donald Trump presidency, and the who's who of tyrants and oligarchs in his administration. How the choice between the two parties sometimes doesn't feel like much of a choice at all. Why the Democrats fail and outright harm the communities they swear they're protecting. Why media outlets ranging from Fox News to MSNBC and from the New York Times to the New York Post often seem like they're just saying the same exact things over and over again. Why we are in a state of perpetual war, regardless of which party controls Congress or the White House. Then I hope you'll keep listening as I try to analyze and explain all of this to the best of my ability. It's going to take a lot more than this introductory episode to do it, so I hope you'll bear with me as this show finds its voice and its ideal format. This is the fourth estate. So here we are. Donald J. Trump is the 45th president of the United States. His cabinet includes Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who throughout his career has positioned himself as an adversary to voting rights and immigration reform. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is a first-time statesman and the former CEO of ExxonMobil, a company that has spent decades funding efforts to downplay or outright deny the realities of climate change. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, former chairman of One West Bank, whose subsidiary, Financial Freedom, was responsible for 39% of all foreclosures on reverse mortgages in California between 2009 and 2014. Education Secretary and billionaire Betsy DeVos, the first education secretary to have never attended 
or taught at a public school or university. White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon, former executive chair of the right-wing website Breitbart.com, a site Bannon had hoped could serve as the platform for the racist, xenophobic, transphobic, and misogynistic alt-right movement. These are just some of the people President Trump has surrounded himself with. And even if you consider these people experts in their fields, the events of the first several weeks of the Trump presidency don't exactly reflect the actions of a functioning government staffed with able and coherent managers. So far, Trump's presidency has been marred by a series of missteps. Two proposed Muslim travel bans, both struck down as unconstitutional by federal courts, a botched raid in Yemen that resulted in the destruction of a $90 million aircraft, the death of elite U.S. Navy SEAL Ryan Owens, and the deaths of at least 25 civilians, including nine children, a highly publicized but failed attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act, the recusal of Attorney General Sessions from an investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections, and most recently, the attack on a sovereign nation based on unverified evidence and without congressional approval. This isn't going well, by most metrics. And I'm not saying that to upset Trump voters. I think a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump have a lot of concerns in common with a lot of us on the left. I'll get into that further into the show. But what I'm going to attempt to explain and it will likely take several episodes to do, is that the election of Donald Trump and the chaos ensuing presently is the symptom of something larger. Trump's election, the failure of the Republican Party to torpedo his nomination, the Democrats' decision to double down on the disastrous economic policies of the 80s and 90s, and the failure of the media to cover anything critically are symptoms of the failure of the dominant political ideology in the United States. It's called neoliberalism. It's the ideology that, for decades, has cast doubt on the need of even a basic social safety net. It spawned the free trade agreements of the 1990s, led to stagnating wages, poverty, and an explosion of wealth for the already affluent. It created the culture of deregulation that led to the near collapse of the financial market. Neoliberalism is responsible for the lopsided recovery that fueled so much anger on the left and the right when the financial institutions whose recklessness stoked the financial crisis were bailed out by the very taxpayers they were foreclosing on. More on that when we return. Apartment in New York, London and Paris Where will we rest? We're all living on top of it It's all that we have, the USA is utterly bred And no one is willing to share it So, we were discussing neoliberalism 
its dominance among the American political ideologies and its influence on the 2016 election. Neoliberalism is the ideology that I believe the American electorate thought they were rejecting last year when they elected Donald Trump to the presidency and fueled the insurgent Bernie Sanders campaign during the Democratic primary. I just don't think most voters had the vocabulary to articulate what they were rejecting. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. A lot of politicians, pundits, journalists, and academics have absolutely no idea what neoliberalism is or how to talk about it. I think it's useful to start with kind of a summed up version from two intellectuals that I think understand this ideology pretty well. The first is CUNY professor and author of A Brief History of Neoliberalism, David Harvey. He writes, neoliberalism is in the first instance, a theory of political economic practices. Human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free trade. My super simplified version of this is that the basic tenet of neoliberal ideology is the freer the market, the freer the people. And that's kind of how it's been sold to us by both the Republicans and the Democrats. The problem is that the premise, the freer the market, the freer the people, has never really been true. When the market, and that's code for the corporate sphere is so liberated that it can force thousands of jobs overseas, ravage the environment, dramatically slash wages, and influence the legal system enough to keep anyone from doing anything about it. The people don't really seem so free anymore. But there's more to it than that. Princeton University professor Dr. Cornell West in an interview he did back in 2014, described three characteristics of a neoliberal society, financialized, privatized, militarized. So the financialized society no longer considers public programs necessary enough to guarantee them by requiring that they be funded, staffed, or maintained by the government. These programs produce no measurable bottom line and are deemed inefficient, unprofitable, and thus ineffectual. Because the only thing that matters in a financialized society is profit and efficiency. This is a fundamental tenet of neoliberalism. The state should not run, staff, or regulate any program that could conceivably be run by a private for-profit entity. The next characteristic is privatization. That is to say, the selling off of public assets to for-profit private entities. That means the phasing out of every single program that tax dollars pay for, uh, police and fire departments, public schools, Social Security, Medicare, and the VA, even the military, and replacing all of them with private, for-profit versions of themselves. 
And at this point, you're probably wondering, isn't this just capitalism? So in a brief history of neoliberalism, David Harvey identifies a critical and necessary role for government in a neoliberal society. So in the cases of healthcare or public education or social security, there were no corporate or for-profit alternatives until the United States government legislated into existence and subsidized those markets. It's not exactly a libertarian capitalism. The last characteristic is overtly violent, but an eventuality in neoliberal society. Militarization is necessary to protect the financial gains that the private sector clawed away from the public. Neoliberal economic reforms are unpopular, and we've seen widespread resistance to them in other countries and in the United States for decades. When popular resistance threatens to remake or even topple the economic systems of neoliberal societies, the private sector looks to the state to put those resistances down. In the United States, that might look like the police crack down on the Black Lives Matter movement or on Occupy Wall Street. In other countries, it may involve propping up brutal U.S.-backed dictators or crushing economic sanctions imposed by the international community. So imagine a scenario where fire departments all across the United States fell victim to the market reforms imposed by neoliberal economics. The government and the private sector see private market potential where it did not previously exist. They abolish the state-run fire departments, outsource that service to a new massive private entity. The private entity requires a fire protection plan that you pay into or demands that you pay a certain amount before they offer their services during an emergency. Now imagine your affluent neighbor's house catches fire because they like to sleep with all of their gas fireplaces lit, because why not? The fire spreads to your house. When the new privatized fire department shows up and starts to extinguish the fire engulfing your neighbor's house, you beg them to save your house too. You work full time, but can't afford the monthly payments to the fire company and can't afford the money they demand up front. They save your neighbor's house and let yours burn to the ground. Even though your taxes paid for the creation of this new private market and subsidized it, your house burned to the ground anyway. Fire stations in less affluent communities begin to close why bother having a fire station in a community that can't pay for the service? And fire safety regulations begin to disappear. There's money to be made when a house or a building is more likely to catch fire. You begin to sense how terrible this reform is for you and everybody like you. And you realize that you didn't actually vote for this reform. It just happened. So you and a group of people who have gone through this exact same thing, band together and managed to bring a class action lawsuit against the fire company, only to find out that the government and the fire companies all across the United States 
have laid the legal groundwork to protect themselves from people like you. I know this seems like an extreme example, but this is already a reality for some people. Burning. Each year, a Bayan County residence must pay $75 if they want fire protection from the city of South Fulton. This family did not pay, and the mayor says if they don't pay, they're out of luck. Local 6's Jason Hibbs joins us now with our top story tonight. Jason, we've talked about this issue before. A home's on fire, but the family didn't pay the $75 fee, so the fire department doesn't respond. What finally got those firefighters to leave the station? Well, Jennifer, this fire went on for hours because garden hoses just wouldn't put it out. Now, it wasn't until that fire spread to a neighbor's property that the fire department would respond. It turns out the neighbor had paid the fee. So I think I have a take on this past election that doesn't really fit a lot of the dominant narratives floating around right now. Like I said before, I am definitely situated on the left side of the political spectrum. So the election of Donald Trump was a really painful moment for me. I am the son of a Mexican immigrant, and watching the man who began his campaign by insulting the vast majority of Mexican immigrants become president was rough. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. I'm also a feminist, so I was horrified when the man who said this. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. Became the president of the United States. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Even though I'm not part of any religion, I still respect people's faith and believe that this country should welcome people with diverse belief systems, especially when those people are fleeing violence in their own countries. So I want to be clear about this. I'm not a neutral observer. I think the election of Donald Trump and the consequences of that election will be disastrous. But there are a lot of people, um, maybe some of them are listening right now, who were put off by this kind of rhetoric but voted for Donald Trump anyway. And I don't think those people were moved to vote for him because of some desire to see 
African-Americans, Latinos, women, or Muslims receive the kind of treatment that Donald Trump was promising them. But that said, and, and, and I won't beat around the bush about this, um, Donald Trump's presidential campaign gave a lot of people in this country an opportunity to vote their racial animus. And because of the emergence of the alt-right movement and Steve Bannon's role in the White House, I plan to address that in the future because I think it's really, really important and potentially dangerous. But this segment is for people who weren't really sure they wanted a President Donald Trump, but voted for one anyway. And for Hillary Clinton voters who still can't understand how any of this could have possibly happened. I think I know what parts of Donald Trump's economic message appealed to so many people. Our politicians took away from the people their means of making a living and supporting their families. Skilled craftsmen and tradespeople and factory workers have seen the jobs they loved shipped thousands and thousands of miles away. Many Pennsylvania towns, once thriving and humming, are now in a state of total disrepair. This wave of globalization has wiped out totally, totally, our middle class. It doesn't have to be this way. We can turn it around, and we can turn it around fast. But if we're going to deliver real change, we're going to have to reject the campaign of fear and intimidation being pursued by powerful corporations, media elites, and political dynasties. The people who rigged the system for their benefit will do anything and say anything to keep things exactly the way they are. The people who rigged the system are supporting Hillary Clinton because they know as long as she is in charge, nothing's going to change. The inner cities will remain poor. The factories will remain closed. The borders will remain open. The special interests will remain firmly in control. Hillary Clinton and her friends in global finance want to scare America into thinking small. And they want to scare American people out of voting for the better future, and you have a great future, folks. You have a great future. I think I finally started to think that Donald Trump was serious about running for president when I heard him make this speech back in June. And he used that kind of rhetoric all the way through Election Day. What you just heard was a rejection of some of the neoliberal market reforms ushered in by Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. There are two things I think people need to understand here. The first is that Donald Trump discovered a winning message that took down Hillary Clinton, whose resume probably made her one of the most qualified candidates in contemporary American politics. The problem was that she represented a political and economic paradigm that people all over the ideological spectrum were ready to reject. In fact, she made a career of defending and advancing that neoliberal agenda. The same could be said of Jeb Bush, or Marco Rubio, or Ted Cruz, John Kasich. 
and the rest of the Republican primary field. He essentially made the right-wing version of the Bernie Sanders argument that neoliberal economics, specifically globalization and free trade, had devastated working-class Americans, and that there would be no end in sight unless someone radically different were put in the White House. I think he's probably right about that. The second thing I think it's important to understand is that Donald Trump is not going to deliver on his promise to be a radically different president. Donald Trump is not going to remake the economic system in a way that keeps the working class from bleeding out. And I know this because he's putting neoliberals in economic advisory roles and cabinet positions, probably like Hillary Clinton would have, and just like Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan did. I know this because he told us that he only said the things he needed to say to get elected. You've been hearing me say it's a rigged system, but now I don't say it anymore because I won. Okay, it's true. You know, now I don't care. I don't care. Just months ago, Donald Trump was giving stump speeches about the urgency of renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement and making policy that would upset the corporate and political elite. Do you believe in raising taxes on the wealthy? I do. I do. Including myself. I do. Instead, he delivered all of the blunders and big distractions we talked about at the beginning of the show. The Muslim ban, the health care bill, the attack on Syria. Donald Trump's career has always been about making headlines, uh, feuding with celebrities, creating distraction and spectacle. So keeping that in mind is important when we consider what his campaign promises were. What is he actually doing? When is he governing? And when is he just using his platform to distract from the fact that his priorities no longer seem to include the economic reforms he promised? Democrats, liberals, and progressives have some real introspection to do, and many of us are refusing to do it. That's next. direct this last part of the show to the people who definitely didn't expect or maybe didn't want a Donald Trump presidency. We have some very hard truths to face about this past election. First, we have to accept what happened. Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party lost what should have been a very winnable election. We can and should investigate Russian interference into the election. 
but must also accept that if Russian interference influenced the election, it did so by exposing the beliefs, attitudes, and intent of Democratic Party operatives and the candidate herself. The reality is that we lost on the message because the Democratic message this time didn't address the real economic pain people were feeling. Instead, the Democrats attacked Donald Trump's character. Not that he didn't deserve that, but that wasn't enough. And worse, they told struggling voters, what pain? Barack Obama has been the president for eight years. The truth is that the majority of people never really recovered after the 2007 financial collapse. And in 2008, they gave the man they thought was going to help them the presidency. And they gave his party a supermajority in Congress. He was given an electoral mandate unprecedented in modern politics, and he squandered it. Instead of breaking up the banks, he bailed them out and appointed Wall Street loyalists to key positions in his economic team. They proposed market-based or neoliberal solutions to the crisis. Taxpayers bailed out the very institutions that had bankrupted them and got nothing in return. No fundamental change to the system, no guarantee that this wouldn't happen again. They weren't even given the satisfaction of getting to see the people who brought the economy to the brink stand trial for their reckless and illegal behavior. The banks absorbed each other, some rebranded, and nothing really changed. And what's worse is, taxpayers never got a bailout. Foreclosure and debt ruined credit scores and complicated people's lives. Too many of the jobs lost never came back. And after the Democratic primary was over, the standard bearer of the neoliberal policies that helped to cause this tumult became the only viable alternative to Donald Trump. And she never offered a different way forward. Hillary Clinton, while incredibly qualified, embodied too many of the frustrations that voters felt with the political establishment. And yet, so much of the anti-Hillary Clinton rhetoric came out of an unfair, misogynistic, and often conspiratorial narrative that Republicans had spent decades cultivating. But Secretary Clinton earned her reputation as a politician that would tell voters one thing and her financial backers something else. The hacked emails published by WikiLeaks gave us the uncomfortable, even painful truth. In remarks to Deutsche Bank, Hillary Clinton said, Remember what Teddy Roosevelt did? Yes, he took on what he saw as the excesses in the economy, but he also stood against the excesses in politics. He didn't want to unleash a lot of nationalistic, populistic reaction. He wanted to figure out how to get back into that balance that had served America so well over our entire nationhood. Today, there's more that can and should be done that really has to come from the industry itself and how we can strengthen our economy, create more jobs at a time where that's increasingly challenging. 
to get back to Teddy Roosevelt's square deal. And I really believe that our country and all of you are up to that job. I think it's kind of telling that Secretary Clinton, a Democrat, chose to invoke Teddy Roosevelt's square deal to avoid invoking FDR's new deal. And in a secret Goldman Sachs speech, she said, there's nothing magic about regulation. Too much is bad. Too little is bad. How do you get the golden key? How do we figure out what works? And the people that know the industry better than anybody are the people who work in the industry. She was saying these things while she was telling voters in the primary that it was time to rein in the excesses on Wall Street. I'm not sure how that happens while you're promising regulatory roles to people in that industry. And my goal here isn't to attack Hillary Clinton, but to show, at least in part, that the Democratic Party has a corporatism problem and has bought the neoliberal premise. They can fight the culture war all they want, but their economic policies are very aligned with the Republican parties. And that harms every community they claim they're trying to protect in that culture war. I'm also not saying that there is no difference between the two dominant political parties in the United States. Immigrants, women, minorities, LGBTQ people, uh, religious minorities, and low-income Americans all fare better when a Democrat is elected instead of a Republican. But if we are going to be real allies to these oppressed groups, we have to recognize the ways the Democrats are actively perpetuating that oppression. The fact that Donald Trump has inherited the mass surveillance and deportation infrastructures that President Obama built is really troubling. And much of the Obama presidency was about reversing the more punitive aspects of Bill Clinton's 1994 crime bill and how it built so much of the incarceration state. Now that President Obama has left office, much of those shifts in policy are being reversed and in many cases becoming more punitive. Neoliberal Democrats have been building the legal infrastructure with which Republicans can govern in draconian, even violent ways. And liberals aren't doing the Democrats any favors by not holding them accountable. It seems like the liberal base of the Democratic Party keeps giving it chances to be something it doesn't really want to be. The Democratic Party is in a moment of questioning about its identity. You were reelected uh, to lead the Democrats in the House. What do you tell Democrats who want a new direction and, and then go to you? What are you going to do differently? Well, I don't think that people want a new direction. Our values unify us, and our values are about supporting America's working families. That is one that everyone is in agreement on. Here's my question, though. Democrats, since 2008, the numbers are ghastly for Democrats. In Senate, Democrats are down 10%. In the House, down 19.3%. And in governors, 35%. The Democrats are getting clobbered at every level over multiple elections. And, uh, let me just put, the, put that in perspective. 
uh, when President Clinton was elected, the Republicans came in big in the next election. When President Bush was president, we came in big in the next ele in the subsequent election. When President Obama became president, the Republicans came in big in the next election. I guess my question is, the, the, Demo the Republicans reacted to their losses with a big revolution and a change. They have a very new president at the top of their party now. You have somebody like Agricultural Secretary uh, Tom Vilsack saying that the Democratic Party is like a tree that, quote, looks healthy on the outside, but is in the throes of a slow and long-term demise. Well, I have enormous respect for the secretary, but I'm more optimistic about the strength of the Democratic Party. happens now. Figuring that out is something I hope this show can help to do. In the future, we'll talk to people who have different ideas about what to do next. We'll talk to people with radical strategies and ideas about how to protect the most vulnerable communities from the harsh realities of the neoliberal era and the Trump presidency. I hope you'll keep listening. I sincerely thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll check out the next episode in a couple of weeks. I'm Eric Nieto, and this is The Fourth Estate. <laughs>